Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Adam Vinatieri, no time on the clock, and the Patriots have won Super Bowl 36. Unbelievable. From the one-yard line, it's Rod Smart, the 20. Runs out of room, and the Panthers run out of time. The New England Patriots claim their second Super Bowl championship in three years. Rodney Harrison takes it in, and nine seconds remain, and the New England Patriots are on their way to solidifying their team as an NFL dynasty. There's a lot of bright sunshine right now in Foxborough and all over New England. The New England Patriots are the NFL champions. He's in! Patriots win the Super Bowl! Brady has his fifth! What a comeback! And there it is! The dynasty continues! In the 60s, you think of Green Bay. In the 70s, the Steelers. In the 80s, the San Francisco 49ers. The Cowboys in the 90s. And the New England Patriots will be the first dynasty of the 21st century. Okay, that was mildly painful to listen to. Um, <laughs> so I want to say three things here at the beginning of the show. I hope I remember what all three of them are. The first one is, if you're not a sports fan... Okay. Um, it looks like... Oh, I'm back. Okay. Um, so... Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I hear that I, we're having a really weird technical day at the station, but I, I hear I cut out for a second. So I know some of you are not sports fans. I'm looking at you, Patrice Fitzgerald, and you just like turn the show off. Don't do that, all right? Because we are going to talk about this this team, but I mean, we're not going to be talking about gap responsibility in three, four defensive sets. Not that you know what that means anyway. We're going to be talking about human beings and politics and money and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, and Giselle Bunchen. That was number one. Number two, I want to dedicate the show to my sort of son-in-law, Jamie Cameron, and to my sort of grandson, Charlie Cameron, who are wonderful, nice people, despite being diehard, lifelong New England Patriots fans. What's the third thing? Oh, yeah, there's going to be a point in the show where I'm kind of almost going to be like a guest, and that's the sort of whole move the Patriots to Hartford uh, thing, and that's just because I played a larger than usual journalistic role and all that i have things to say but the most of the talking is going to be done by my guest jeff benedict is a special features writer for sports illustrated and author of 16 books his latest is the dynasty which i hold here in my hand it just has those words his name and a new england patriots a football helmet uh, on it that's all you really need to know so jeff benedict welcome back to our show hey it's great to be back thanks for having me on so um I think you would make the case, and I'm going to ask you to do that, that the little thing that we hear Joe Buck or Jim Nance or somebody saying at the end of that montage is, if anything, kind of an understatement. It isn't simply that there's a sequence of decades in which one football franchise after another becomes a, a dynasty. You really think that the Patriots belong in a much smaller group 
uh, of dominant sports franchises uh, that transcend mere football success. So, um, so make that case. Yeah, Colin, that's actually a pretty easy case to make because in the 100-year history of the National Football League, there's never been a team, an organization, that's won six championships in a 20-year span with the same three principles in place, the owner, Robert Kraft, the head coach, Bill Belichick, and the quarterback, Tom Brady. There's really legitimately been, you know, probably four dynasties before them. There were the Packers in the 60s who won a couple Super Bowls. Uh, There was the Steelers in the 70s who won four. The 49ers in the 80s and early 90s. And then the Cowboys uh, who won three in the early 90s. These guys have won six. Um, They've been to nine in that 20-year span. And what's really separated them from everyone else in football is the the length or longevity of the marriage between the quarterback and the coach. So I think the discussion that they belong in is not whether they're the best dynasty in the history of football. That's kind of an open and shut case. It's where do they where do they sit with other dynasties like the Yankees of the DiMaggio and Mantle era, or the Celtics of the Bill Russell era, and I think that uh, or maybe the Bulls of the Michael Jordan era. And I think that this team sits with probably those three teams in the conversation about the greatest dynasties in American history. So this book is, in many respects, a a profile of a kind of three-cornered relationship. You've already kind of made reference to it in our conversation. Uh, On the one hand, uh, there's Robert Kraft, uh, the well-known owner of the New England Patriots. Uh, Then there's Bill Belichick, the longtime coach. And then the third uh, corner, obviously, is Tom Brady. And in a way, it seems as though, reading the book, that you feel, and I think many people feel, that if you take any one of those corners away and replace it with almost anybody else, you you don't have the phenomenon you just described, that there's something about the balance uh, among these three men that creates uh, a very special uh, entity that it's even hard to put a name on. So maybe you could just say a little bit more about that. Just very quickly, describe these three people to people who maybe don't know them all that well. Uh, Late in the process. uh, So I was, I spent two years inside the organization and had a lot of access to, to these guys in the organization. Near the end of the reporting process, I visited Robert Kraft in New York at his, he has an apartment that overlooks uh, Central Park. It's the first time that I had been there. I'd been with him a lot by now, but I'd never been to this apartment. When you walk in, you look across the room and there are these two big windows that overlook Central Park. And in between them were two framed pictures of the Beatles. These pictures of the Beatles were taken when they first came to America to appear on the Ed Sullivan Show. And they were signed by the Beatles, authentic signatures. When Robert uh, Kraft came into the room, I asked him about the pictures, and he told me those pictures were taken in the building we were standing in. And, uh, and he started to talk about how, how much he loved the Beatles when they were a band and how sad he was when they broke up so prematurely when they were on top of the world. And it, I started thinking about how he looked at Brady and Belichick all these years. He really did see them as the NFL's version of Lennon and McCartney. They were the two best in the world at what they did. He had both of them on his payroll. And he understood how hard it was going to be to keep 
a coach like Belichick and a quarterback like Brady married for, for very long. His whole tenure as an owner was about how to keep them on the same stage, these two bright stars that both burned so hot. And I think the fact that he kept them together for 20 years was really a function of two things. Number one, he formed a relationship with Tom that was more like a father-son relationship. He describes Tom as his fifth son. And Tom was really close with, you know, with Brady's sons as well. They were like brothers to him. And secondly, he had a very different relationship with Bill Belichick. Belichick is more distant, but it's a professional relationship that, that involved a great deal of trust. He really viewed Belichick like his business partner in this venture of running a football team. And those two relationships keep the quarterback and coach together. And the reason that's so critical is because Brady and Belichick off the field are a lot like Lennon and McCartney were at the end, where they would go into the studio at Abbey Road and make incredible music. But as soon as they walked out of the studio, they wouldn't go to a pub together and have beer. They'd go their separate ways. And I, that's really how uh, Brady and Belichick were. It's a miracle in many ways that they played together for 20 years. That's the secret, was they had two weapons on their side of the field that were the best in the game. I think if they were separated, sure, Brady would have won some Super Bowls and Belichick would have won some as well, but they wouldn't have won six and been to nine. And I think the genius of the owner was he figured that out really early. Let me uh, just, uh, since you're mentioning Belichick a little bit, first of all, I, you know the, the most fascinating portrait in the book, I think, is of Robert Kraft, who I think comes across as a very different person than I had imagined him to be. Uh, and, and you get a guy who is so close to Elton John that, you know, when he and his wife celebrate a big wedding anniversary, Elton John just shows up and plays music for it. And you get a guy who really does sort of agonize about things like drafting a guy like Christian Peter and then finding out that he really, you know, has a terrible series of accusations against him about uh, sexual violence towards women um, and, and, and really winds up doing a very hard thing about it. I, I don't know. His his conscience uh, and his complexity really kind of jumped out at me. Belichick, I, I still, I think a lot of people find this guy an enigma. Uh, and, and he's, for people who don't know, or I mean, this is a guy who really kind of dresses like a homeless person. He uh, wears a hoodie that often has uh, cut off, the arms kind of cut off uh, at the shoulders. Uh, he, 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 wears a perpetual scowl on his face when you see him at the beginning of the game. A reasonable conclusion would be that right before exiting the locker room, he ate a live kitten, you know, just to sort of get himself in the mood he needs to be in to win a game. So I, I, to what degree did you manage to see past all of that and see, uh, do you have like a better sense than the average person of who Bill Belichick really is? Or is he just really that guy? I think, you know, one of the most important jobs, my job, one of the most important aspects of my job is to um, observe and listen a lot more than talk. And so early on in this project, I would say for the first season, which would have been the 2018 season for me, I watched these three men an awful lot and I watched them up close. I was in the locker room when the team would come off the field. I wasn't there to ask questions or conduct interviews. I was there to observe, to keep my mouth shut and see things. And I watched all three of them and the way they interact with each other, the way they interact with the rest of the team. 
um, you can learn a lot just by watching. And and I think that uh, Belichick, he is unique. He is very different. Um, he has this ability, uh, which, by the way, Robert Kraft doesn't possess this ability, which is to emotionally divorce himself from the very difficult part of the business, which is cutting players, uh, saying goodbye, letting go of guys, often when they're at the peak of their career, when they're at star level or star status, he lets them go. And these are guys that have become very attached to the fan base in New England, who are part of the fabric of the community. And he cuts them without a second thought. That's something that the owner isn't capable of doing uh, but he knows Belichick is, and he appreciates the need for someone with that capacity as his head coach. And I think that's part of the complexity of their relationship. They are extremely different men, but there are moments like when Bill Belichick's father dies, which is a really interesting moment in this story, I think. Uh, Belichick finds out about his dad passing uh, in the middle of the night. Um, to Belichick's credit, he'd been on the phone with his dad hours earlier. They talked all the time. When he found out his dad had passed, he, he notified Robert. And the next day, the Patriots had a game. Kraft showed up, um, excuse me, Belichick showed up and coached. Kraft figured he wouldn't coach, that he would get to uh, get home and be with his mother and get ready for the funeral. But Bill's point was, you know, my father would want me to do this. This is where I should be. And the only player who knew in advance of that game that Bill had lost his father was Tom. And that's because Robert felt it was important to tell Tom. So Tom plays that game knowing that Bill has lost his father. None of the other players know that. And then as soon as the game is over in the locker room, Bill discloses to the team that his dad passed away the night before. It's the first time that the 53 players on the Patriots roster had ever seen Bill vulnerable. And it's an interesting moment. I interviewed numerous players about that moment, and they said they were, they were spellbound, they were stunned, and they really didn't know how to respond because they'd never seen him that way. And then there's a very touching moment after Bill tells that to the team. Robert steps forward and uh, gives him the game ball in honor of his dad and they, they hug each other. And the reason that's a big deal is because Robert hugs a lot of people a lot. And he and Tom have that kind of relationship. But Bill is not that kind of guy. He's not a touchy-feely, emotionally expressive man. But in that moment, he was. And I think you – so there are these moments in the story where you see insights into who these three men are. And you also see how different they are but in some really personal, emotional ways, they, they have a tightness between them that um, I, I just think is really unique in sports. So uh, before we get to the end of this first segment, we have to talk about the chapter that I immediately turned to because I'm a human being and I can't help myself. And because and then it gave me PTSD uh, to read it. Uh, it's a chapter called Dear John. Uh, it is about a story that begins more or less in the spring of 1998. Uh, Robert Kraft is unhappy uh, with the facilities in Massachusetts. The Massachusetts legislature uh, is showing no sign 
signs of giving him what he wants, which is a very large public to private transfer of money uh, to build a stadium, uh, which we have become very accustomed to uh, these days. And then he gets this very peculiar offer from the state of Connecticut. And I'll let you pick up the story, Jeff. Uh, Explain what happens. (laughs) You know, I think the thing to start with is Robert Kraft didn't want to take his team anywhere out of Massachusetts. He had offers from Rhode Island and other places to go, but he had a long battle going with uh, the the state house in Massachusetts. They were not willing to support any, basically any construction of a new stadium. And um, it, it got to the point where the Patriots had the worst stadium in the NFL. They had to get a new building. And when it was clear that it wasn't going to be in Massachusetts, Governor Rowland actually approached the, the Patriots. He, he specifically approached Jonathan Kraft in Montville, Connecticut, where the, where the Krafts own uh, a, a paper mill, basically. And uh, Rowland was visiting there while, while campaigning for his last term as governor. And at that facility, Jonathan was there to greet him. And he, Rowland was astute. He knew what was going on in Massachusetts, and he let Jonathan know that he was interested in talking to his father about the prospect of the team coming to Connecticut and that they would treat him a lot differently than he was being treated in Massachusetts. One thing led to another. They got going in conversations. They had meetings. They went to each other's homes. They started to build a rapport. And when it was really clear to the crafts that it was not going to happen in Massachusetts, they decided to enter into this agreement with the state of Connecticut. Um, It's important to say that they knew this wasn't their top choice, um, but it seemed like their only choice at that point. And really, Roland offered the kind of deal that you can't refuse. Um, it was a the state was paying for everything. And with the guarantees that were built into this offer, it would have made uh, Mr. Kraft the, you know, the wealthiest owner in the NFL and it would have happened fast. There was a there was a ton of guaranteed money. In fact, too much. Oh yeah, um, let me just jump in here, Jeff. It was an obscene deal. It and and the and Roland's entire philosophy at the time was, how can I get this franchise to do something it doesn't want to do? I will offer them the sun, the moon, and the stars. Uh, on behalf of my taxpayers, will eventually be having to pay for this. And the degree to which this was unprecedented in the history of the NFL, unprecedented in the history of professional sports in terms of one state's just insane largesse to uh, another team, really, really bothered me at the time. I remember kind of fly-specking the deal when we first got a chance to look at it. I mean, you know, beyond this, all this incredible stuff where basically Connecticut would pay for almost everything and the Patriots would pay almost nothing. It was even the case that like, let's say Bruce Springsteen or Elton John for that matter, did a concert on the grounds of this stadium, which the taxpayers of Connecticut had built sometime when the Patriots weren't using it. The the concession profits from like popcorn would go to Robert Kraft. (laughs) Connecticut wouldn't even keep money from times when the stadium wasn't even being used for Patriots activity. It was just unbelievable at the time. And what was amazing, Jeff, and then I'll let you start talking again, was that basically in Connecticut, the vast majority of people just thought it was wonderful. The Hartford Current in the most 
toxic forfeiture of its obligation to report on things, put out an extra, like it was VE Day or something, uh, that said touchdown across the front. So, yes. so much for the idea that we're really going to look critically at this deal and see whether it, it really is sufficiently advantageous to the state of Connecticut. No, no, they just called it a touchdown because it existed. Can you tell I'm bitter? Yes. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, at the time, $374 million in, in authorized state funding to build a stadium uh, and the deal structured the way it was, it did seem like an obscene deal. Uh, and it's not really, there's not much point in, in sort of relitigating that now. However, I would say that it's interesting. Uh, if you came to today, and looked back, that number looks a lot smaller mm -hmm. than it did then. And I think if you look at what the Patriots have done since that deal fell apart, just look at what's happened in the last 20 years. Think about all the winning. Think about all the Super Bowls, all the playoff games that have been played in Foxborough, nationally televised, how they became basically the most important sports franchise to the network of CBS Think about the Patriots Place shopping plaza that has gone up in a place like Foxborough where there's nothing, there's no other reason to go to Foxborough. And it's not on a highway. It's not near a city. And they have movie theaters and stores that range from, you know, Bass to Trader Joe's to, it, it, it is a massive operation that's now in Foxborough making tons of money you do have to at least ask the question with an open mind, how different would Hartford be today if that deal had gone through with the state paying that money to build the stadium and bring in what became the, the greatest sports team of the 21st century to Hartford with all those championships and all of the other business that could have gone up around it. It's at least worth the debate yes. of whether that was such a bad deal or not, because Here's the thing. At the time, nobody knew that the Patriots were going to go on this winning streak. We have to remember in the late 90s, they had never won anything. And so in hindsight, that deal doesn't look so bad for Connecticut. It actually looks like it, it could have turned out to be a really good deal. We, we really won't ever know that. But look, when Robert Kraft paid what seemed like an obscene amount of money to buy the Patriots a few years earlier, the most expensive price tag in the history of the NFL for the worst team in the league at the time, that deal looks like a steal today. So uh, we, we're not going to relitigate it because we don't have time, uh, but um, also because there would be no point. But um, so there, when it was all over, and by the way, there's a terrific scene in Jeff's book, which I had never heard before, which involves John Rowland when he realizes the crafts are, are maybe about to walk away from this deal, uh, offering to bend over a chair and have various things inserted in his person, uh, which might have been kind of a predictive moment given the way his life went later. But um, it's a, I won't say any more about it. But so, you know, when it was all over, Jeff, there were these kind of multiple theories around. One of them was that Hartford had always just been bait, basically, that uh, that it had been misdirection, that there had been no intention to come here. He, Kraft, was simply trying to leverage more support, more public support in Massachusetts. There was another theory that, you know, as, as Robert and Myra Kraft went around to galas and dinner parties and stuff like that up in Boston, there was like this, what are you doing to us thing that was beginning to weigh on him. 
I have always subscribed to the theory, and I had a pretty good view of this at the time, and it's pretty much there in your book the same way, that at a certain point, Robert Kraft, who is a very smart man, concluded he could not always trust the things that John Rowland told him. If John Rowland said something had been taken care of, that didn't really mean that that thing had been taken care of. It didn't mean the EPA was satisfied about something. It didn't mean that CTG was willing to move its steam plant or whatever it was being talked about, that he suddenly realized that some of the stuff this guy, this governor had been saying to him was BS. And that was really enough to make him back away from this table groaning with goodies. But but give us your interpretation of, of why there weren't wasn't the Hartford New England Patriots. I, I think that the I certainly understand why at the time, most people, particularly in Connecticut, I was in Connecticut at the time. I'm in Connecticut now. Uh, I, I know how people in our state felt about it. It looked like from the outside looking in that this state was used as bait, as leverage. And that that just wasn't the case. Uh, it's true that he didn't really want to come here, but he knew he had to come here. And you don't go to the extent of notifying your season ticket holders that their tickets will be honored in Hartford unless you're going to Hartford. I mean, they were coming. And Jay Malsinski, who had longtime been Governor Rowland's right-hand man and uh, his lobbying firm worked for the governor, he got permission to work for the Crafts in this particular case. And, you know, I spent time with, with Jay for the book. I interviewed him. I interviewed Governor Rowland's lawyer. It, it, they were really coming. I think the turning point was there were two things. The relationship between Rowland and Kraft started to sour when Kraft started raising difficult questions about issues involving the property where the stadium was going to be constructed. They were legitimate questions. The steam mill was still there and the state was at a standstill. There was no telling when they were going to get the owners to come to terms and get the steam mill out of there. That was when Roland had the press conference and threatened to tear it down himself. I mean, there was stuff like that. And when, when Kraft was asking for extensions on timelines, you know, Roland started to become less the friend that he was in the beginning and more petulant, more angry, more like a bully and less like a business partner. And I think that that was a telling moment for Kraft who builds long-term relationships of trust. I think the other thing was the state of Massachusetts finally realized they were really losing the Patriots and that some of the people in government, the governor in particular, and the head of the Senate realized that they couldn't let the House of Representatives in the state dictate whether they lost the team or not. So they went back door and reached out to the commissioner's office in New York. And the commissioner wanted all along to keep the Patriots in Massachusetts. He didn't want them in Connecticut because Connecticut was the market territory of the Giants and the Jets. And it would cause big problems in the league if the Patriots moved into it. And so they had a mutual interest in New York and in Massachusetts to partner and figure out a way to not to keep the Patriots in New England, but to bring them back from Hartford because they really were legally in Connecticut at that point. All right, we're gonna have to stop there. Uh, you wanna know more about it? And that's just one chapter in this uh, sprawling book. Everything you wanna know about is in this book. I mean, if you wanna know things about the New England Patriots, uh, the book is The Dynasty. We're gonna talk more to Jeff Benedict when we come back. Uh, uh, 
So Brady, pull me closer to more Super Bowl exposure. Raise that MVP award while you're hoisted on our shoulders. Throw that pass that beats the corner off that pump. All right, uh, we are back. Uh, we're talking to Jeff Benedict. Uh, his book about the Patriots is called The Dynasty. Um, so, you know, there's a way in which, yes, the Patriots have uh, approached perfection uh, in a way that very few sports franchises do. Uh, they also timed it all out perfectly for you because it, it seems like that period is probably kind of over. Um, but there's also a way in which, and, be, and maybe these things are all tied together, the Patriots excite a kind of anger and disdain from people who are not Patriots fans. In other words, it's not just sort of Patriots fans or not a Patriots fan, right? It's Patriots fans, and then I hate the Patriots so much. I mean, Tucker Ives, who works at WNPR, has probably resigned from his job today because we're even doing this show. So, I mean, <laughs> wh where do you... Where do you think all that comes from? Is it just the success or is it something else? I, I think that obviously to be beloved is, is a sign of success. But in sports, the ultimate sign of success is to be hated. And the Patriots are universally hated, the most hated team in the NFL. The only team that I can think of uh, that has generated this degree of hatred is the Yankees of yesteryear, not the current Yankees, but the Yankees of old. And, and the, obviously the common parallel between the Yankees of old and the New England Patriots of today, or at least of the last 20 years, is they just won so much more than everybody else. Uh, in competitive sports, that is a, that's the ultimate achievement, I think, is when every other sports franchise in your industry despises you, that's the clearest signal that you are head and shoulders above everybody else. And I think that that's what comes with the degree of winning that Belichick, Kraft, and Brady generated over the last 20 years. And so for New Englanders, it, it obviously became a badge of honor, a source of pride. Uh, it's why there are so many t-shirts and signs that say New England versus everybody. And it really helped the Patriots actually uh, in terms of how they prepared for games, the, the, the sense of us against the world within the building of Gillette Stadium and also when they went out on the road, um, I, I think it's part of their success formula. Um, there's also this interesting kind of paradox that I see at the heart of the Patriots uh, in terms of their style, which you may or may not agree with. I mean, in a way, I think as just an outsider looking at the Patriots, they seem like really kind of a model of discipline. There's a way in which Belichick has invented this system where you kind of, you, you figure out what's there and you take it, you know, you, you as rarely as possible, do you force something that's not there? Um, you, there there's just sort of a, a very cool calculation about this and it extends to what you were talking about before which is deciding when a player is actually still kind of looking like he's in or near his prime that it's time to get rid of that player uh, stuff like that and, and that bumps up against a thing that's right near the start of your book and runs through the Patriots story which is they also kind of famously take chances on players who for characterological reasons other teams have given up on uh, you know players who are physically incredibly gifted but 
there's kind of a knock on them. They're not a team player uh, or they're a discipline problem. They're an issue in the locker room. And, and Belichick time and time again goes and he wants to get those guys. And to me, those two things kind of, they don't make sense side by side, discipline and a desire to go find a, a rebel. Well, I think that, you know, one of the reasons it does make sense is because Belichick, psychologically, I just I can't think of another coach in any of the uh, sports leagues in, in America that are as astute as Belichick is in terms of understanding the psychology of, of athletes and football players in particular. He, what he sees in guys, some of the guys you're thinking of, Corey Dillon, Randy Moss, Dante Stallworth, uh, Rodney Harrison, these are all guys that had bad raps for one reason or another before they came to New England. These are also guys that had never won anywhere. And they're super competitive athletes who've never won. And so what Belichick sees is the chance to get a superior athlete, a Hall of Fame caliber player who he can bring in and he's confident that he can mold him to buy into their system, to do it their way. And he knows that these guys are so hungry for the one thing they don't have. They got all the talent in the world, but they have no hardware to show for it. And they're coming to the one place where they think they can actually get the hardware. And the reason they think that is because New England has hardware. They have more of it than anybody else. And so you have this built-in system there that is, it's magnetic for guys like that. And most of them, not all of them, but most of them, when they come, they succumb to the program. There's a great moment, and I, and I actually loved writing about this, where Randy Moss. And I know Dante the story Stallworth, you're about to tell. Yeah, I know the story you're going to tell. Tell it, yeah. Yeah, so they, you know, they come to New England and there's all kinds of questions about their character and their background and all this stuff. And in their first team meeting, Belichick stands up and berates Tom Brady. I mean, Brady is the superstar, not just of the team, but of the league. He is the man. And here's Belichick just ripping him down in the first team meeting. And Moss and Stallworth look at each other because they're sitting side by side and they're like, holy, you know what? <laughs> they're flabbergasted by what's happening. And they're also flabbergasted with the way Brady responds by not responding. In other words, it's as if Brady doesn't mind. Obviously, he does mind. He's a human being, but he tolerates it and he puts up with it. And as a result of it, guys like Moss and Stallworth think to themselves, hey, if Tom is taking it, we have to do that too. They get in line behind him. They line up and they go through the same gauntlet that he does. That's like a, a secret sauce that no other team has where you have your superstar can you imagine Peyton Manning or Aaron Rodgers or any of these guys tolerating that year in and year out? The answer is no. But that was part of who Tom was. He was willing to do it for the sake of the team. And it got superstars who came there to do it as well. Right. So um, I have to ask you about this, even though she's not a Titanic figure in your book. But Kat Pastor and I agreed. One, one of the people who didn't necessarily want to take it or 
think Tom Brady should have to take it, uh, is Giselle Bündchen, his supermodel wife. She's a really unusual athlete's wife. I mean, obviously, she came into the marriage with her own portfolio. She was always already really, really very, very famous. But, you know, whether it's kind of like chewing out the rest of the team in 2012 or saying that Bill Belichick has no right to talk to her husband like this, I mean, she emerges in your book as kind of, you know, a kind of unusually forceful sports wife who isn't afraid to say stuff that her husband would never say. I actually loved writing about Giselle. Uh, look, as you know, Colin, there's a number of women in this book who are strong figures, starting with Myra Kraft in mm -hmm. the very early parts of this book. Uh, Drew Bledsoe's wife, Maura. This goes on and on. There, there's a lot of women in this narrative. And I think Giselle, you said she's not a Titanic figure. I would actually say she is a Titanic figure. Uh, she has a major role in this dynasty. And it's an underappreciated, underestimated, misunderstood role by most New England Patriots fans. She has a lot to do with why Tom stays in New England for as long as he does. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but their relationship is, is built that way. And that was really important for the longevity of his tenure there. I, I think that what makes her so interesting is when she marries Tom Brady, she is a bigger star than he is on the world stage. She is wealthier than he is. She has more power and influence than he does. And this is what makes their, their coupling so amazing and, and interesting from a writing standpoint. And it also is what sort of complicates things for the Patriots and, and for Belichick. Um, but I, I look, the fact that she is outspoken to a certain degree and she's not afraid to state her mind uh, and her point of view, I, I think that that's, you know, that says a lot actually about the quality of their relationship. And it also tells you a lot about Tom and, and the kind of man he is, uh, the kind of husband he is, the kind of father he is. I mean, it's all part of that mix. And, uh, you know, she, she's there and, um, and she's real. I mean, that's the thing. She is a presence in the dynasty. She plays an important role. And uh, I, I can just say from my standpoint, I was glad to have someone like her, uh, you know, enter the story when she did. All right. So um, there's sort of another aspect of the Patriots legacy that's impossible not to write about and not to talk about once you've read Jeff's book. Some of it can be summed up in this clip from Saturday Night Live. Dougie, did Tom Brady at any point instruct you to take air out of those footballs? This man is a saint. Oh, Dougie. Well, you think you can do what he does? He has won three Super Bowls, six if you include the losses. This man is a legend, a hero, and one day he is going to be the father of my child. I'm sorry, what? Dougie, we just want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Son, we live in a world that has balls, and those balls have to be inflated by men with pumps. Who's going to do it, you? You, Reporter Weinberg? You don't want the truth, because deep down in places you don't talk about at Super Bowl parties, you want me on that ball. You need me on that ball. Did you deflate the ball? I did the job I was told to do. Did you deflate the ball? You did right, I did! 
So that's the 2015 Saturday Night Live uh, take on Deflate Gate. But, uh, Jeff, in writing about this, uh, you go through a number of the controversies, starting, in fact, with an argument about taping defensive hand signals, a feud ignites between two products of that amazing college football factory known as Wesleyan University, Bill Belichick and uh, Bill Belichick and Eric Mangini from the, the Jets. And, uh, by the way, Mangini is a, a Hartford guy, too, grew up not too far from here. Um, so, yeah, explain what happens there. <laughs> I'm just laughing. I'm glad you included that clip from SNL. Because, um, as you know, I include that clip in the yes. book because it's just so great. But, uh, look, this all starts because Mangini, who coached under Belichick uh, in the first game of the 2007 season, uh, he accused the Patriots in the middle of the game of cheating, of basically filming the hand signals from the Jets' sideline during the game. What's important to note here as a backdrop is that the, the league had just issued a memo to every team telling them to stop doing that. And the reason the league did that is because everybody was doing that. This is not something that was unique to New England. The league was doing it, so they got a memo telling all the teams to quit filming hand signals. And this was the first game of the new season, and the Patriots did it in the first half, and they got caught. And they got punished for it and fined. And, you know, Belichick apologized. And we thought that was going to be the end of it. But was, what was more important, I think, and what's really stuck with the Patriots is that at the end of that season, the Patriots ran the table that year. They went 16-0. and The taping of the Jets had nothing to do with the outcome of the game. They did break a rule, but it didn't affect the game. Then the Super Bowl comes and they're facing the Giants. And literally on the eve of the Super Bowl, the Boston Herald accused the Patriots of something far more serious, far more egregious. The Herald claimed that years earlier, on the eve of the Super Bowl against the Rams in 2002, that the Patriots had illegally filmed the last practice of the Rams, which is called a walkthrough. That's a much bigger accusation. It's a it's a felony in NFL terms. And... Uh, Everybody ran with it from ESPN to the Washington Post as if it had actually happened. Nobody really paid attention to the fact that five months later, the Boston Herald admitted on the front and back page that they were wrong, that that didn't happen, and they never saw any tape. It was a made-up story. But even to this day, people still look at that, and they don't know that that the Herald did that, and they believe that the Patriots have actually done this multiple times. I think it's the kind of thing when we talk about earlier hating a team that wins all the time, it's part of that vernacular for the Patriots. It's something that's in their history and in that case didn't really happen. But all of that stuff is connective tissue to the Deflategate scandal that came in 2014. And that scandal obviously got far more attention. That's the SNL skit than anything happened before that. And I would just say, Colin, that I think the reality is Had it not been for the taping allegations in 2007, I don't think Deflategate would have got the kind of attention that it did in 2014. I agree. We're talking to Jeff Benedict. I should say, Jeff is doing two outdoor, in-person, socially distanced book signings this Saturday. In fact, you can run like a small curl route and he will throw his book to you as long as you don't (laughs) exceed, let's say, seven yards. Uh, He'll be at Elm Street Books in New Canaan from noon to 2 p.m. and at Barrett Bookstore in Darien from 3 to 5 p.m. From 3 to 5 p.m. That is this Saturday. Uh, Jeff is going to do this. He will sign his book. 
You will sign it as Giselle Bundchen, if that's what you choose. Uh, and we're going to take a little break, and we'll come back. We're not going to have too much time here at the end. Thank you, Gostkowski, for missing that kick outside the gooch. FYT Brady. It's really quite sad how much I enjoy watching Tom Brady. Become deflated and annoyed. FYT all right, we're back. I very quickly want to thank Cat Pastor. She's in the studio making the whole show work and hum and all that stuff. Uh, and Jonathan McPants, uh, he is the producer uh, of this episode. And there's going to be a whole other show tomorrow, but I'm not allowed to tell you what it is. Um, so we're back with uh, Jeff Benedict. Uh, he is the author of The Dynasty. Um, we don't have a lot of time left, unfortunately, and that's actually a good sign. It means the show's been flying by really fast. Um, you know, you can't do a show anymore about anything without talking about Donald Trump. And so that's sort of, we have to say a little bit about that. All three of these men that we've been talking about, Robert Kraft, Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, that, you know, they have unusual ties to Donald Trump. That's nothing, nothing wrong with that as far as 74 million Americans uh, are concerned. But what do you make of those connections? You know, I think that it's interesting because they're different, meaning the, the, the connections the three men have with him are very different. Robert's connection is one that he and his wife, Myra, formed with, with Donald and uh, one of his prior wives uh, when they became neighbors in Florida. And, and that's a relationship that was way before, you know, Donald was president or anything else. And, you know, it's a relationship that was more personal uh, and it, it was built that way. Both Brady and, and Belichick don't even really meet Trump until they're with the Patriots and the Patriots start winning. And Trump sort of gravitates to, to them uh, when the Patriots are winning. He starts inviting Brady to all kinds of things. In fact, by the time he decides to run for president, he, he asks Tom to speak at the Republican National Convention. Tom turned him down. I mean, Tom did not want to get involved in the politics of Donald Trump. And, um, you know, despite the fact that I think Trump was, you know, saying things about Tom publicly to make it sound as if like he was a big supporter. And then there's Bill who did something you know, rather unusual for him, which was he essentially publicly endorsed Donald uh, right before the election with, with Hillary um, by allowing Donald Trump to read aloud a letter that Belichick sent him uh, and, and, Trump used it in New Hampshire to try to persuade New Hampshire voters to vote for him. That didn't happen. But nonetheless, it was a sort of a, an interesting twist for a coach who doesn't really advocate his players getting involved in things that become distractions from football. And so I do get into all of that in the book because I think that the relationships of the three men with this uh, president are, you know, they're not only interesting, but they're important in terms of that period in time for the dynasty. You know, and I think for Kraft, who, as I say, emerges as a much more complicated and in many ways admirable character than I would have expected going in, uh, you know, and there's a way in which, you know, Andre Tippett, one of his, uh, one of the former Patriots players who's black and has a front office job, just talks about, you know, the way that, that Kraft had kind of stuck with him. And and then you've got this guy, this, this politician, this president who, 
says about players who kneel during the national anthem, somebody run out there and tackle that son of a bitch. And a lot of athletes of color were really, really troubled, particular by, particularly by that turn of phrase, if you could call it that. And, and yes. it, it does seem as though it bothered Kraft, too, for because, in fact, he has a relationship with his black players that doesn't really fit that kind of language. Well, it, ba- it bothered him immensely because that's not who he is and it's not how he thinks. And it's such a departure from who Kraft is a- a- as a human being. Uh, and so that is why I think he was the first and only owner to come out publicly uh, with a critical statement in response to the president's statement about Colin Kaepernick. Uh, despite being the one who probably had the closest relationship to the president, of all the owners in the NFL, he was the only one who came out publicly and criticized that statement and that kind of, of talk. And I think that that, you know, it, it shows you something about who uh, Kraft is. Uh, look, the things that Trump did and said in his four years were very disruptive to the NFL. They caused a lot of problems. They hurt people in the NFL. They hurt the league. Um, it was divisive rhetoric that that really, like so many other things he said, were, were kind of designed to be that. And the NFL, you know, obviously wasn't expecting any of that, but it fed right into it. And I think that, you know, the league is obviously in a very different place today than they were when Trump started saying that stuff four years ago. So we've only got about a minute left. Um, obviously, Brady is gone. Gronkowski is gone. Belichick is doing subway commercials that actually make fun of his cranky, hatchet-faced image. Um, is, is this is the dynasty over? You've got about 30 seconds to answer that question. The dynasty that we know is over because Brady's gone. And I would have said the same thing if Belichick had left or if Kraft stopped being the owner. It requires the three of them. Doesn't mean there can't be another dynasty, but the one we've watched for 20 years is is now part of New England history. All right. So the book is The Dynasty. Uh, it is authored by Jeff Benedict. He has signings this weekend. You should go to them. Uh, this has been a lot of fun, even though it's about the Patriots, and I don't like them very much either. Uh, and uh, but thanks to everybody, especially Jeff and Jonathan and Kat. Thank you. 